the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. Thanks for tuning in. I never take that for granted. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Them for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, church questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever's on your heart. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. All you have to do is... Um, send the question to us and we will get it on the air as soon as we possibly can. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of your screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, as usual on Tuesday, we don't have anything going on, so we can get right to some questions. Um, the first one is an anonymous question. Uh, Pastor Ron, can you give some tips on prayer? Uh, I can, and you know, I've had a lot of questions about prayer recently, Anonymous, so I thought I would go to the source. Now, I'll offer some of my own too, but I thought I would go to the source uh, for tips on prayer and start there. Let's get it from Jesus himself. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says in verse 5, Matthew 6, this is the Sermon on the Mount. He says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Now, that's the first thing is make sure your heart is right. Make sure your motives are right. You know, the Lord's half-brother said that that uh, we have not because we ask not or because we ask amiss or ask with the wrong motives. And uh, I think so much of our prayer is bathed in wrong or impure motives. We want what we want, and we're trying to convince the Lord to give us those things. And we can fool ourselves, say, you know, Lord, I have faith. I really believe this. But we've got to be willing to pray in the will of God. And that means putting his will ahead of our own will. And that's where motive comes in. I tell our church here all the time, motive is everything. Your heart is in the wrong place. God can't possibly answer your prayers. If you can't say, as Jesus did um, when he was trying to um, um, approach his father on on, on removing um, the, the cross from his future, um, nevertheless, thy will, not my will, be done, he said. And so we've got to be men and women who go before the Lord and simply say, Jesus, your will is better than anything I can imagine. So that's what I want. And so what we do is we 
pray with the right heart, with the right motives, not to be seen by men, not to impress men, but simply to understand that we are in a conversation with God. Secondly, I would say to make your prayers short and conversational. Be specific. Get to the point. Uh, I think our prayers ought to be bathed in uh, in, in thanksgiving. You know, um, I have a bad habit. Uh, you know, I say things as they come to my mind. And by the time I get up out of bed, for example, my mind is already going. I got 10 things that I'm already thinking about. And there are times when I will uh, say to Paula something that's on my mind and she'll look back at me and she'll say, well, good morning. And I know that's a rebuke. It's a well-deserved rebuke. It's her way of saying to me that uh, why don't we start with the important stuff first? And we have to slow ourselves down and our prayers need to be bathed in thanksgiving. The Apostle Paul says, with thanksgiving, make your request known to the Lord. And if we're not making our our requests known with grateful hearts, then immediately our prayers are not going to be answered. Instead, Jesus said, continuing in Matthew 6, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who's unseen, uh, and then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. But then he has to reward you based on your heart for prayer. And and without being grateful, Anonymous, we simply aren't going to have our prayers answered. And then he says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. When I said, make your prayers short and conversational, this is what I had in mind. And so often we'll keep saying the same kind of things. Now, here's another place where I have to really, really guard my own prayer time because I am a person of routine. I don't like to forget things. And the way I remember things is to do them in a certain order. And I think that's okay sometimes when I'm praying. I'm praying for some people. I don't want to forget other people. So I'll pray for those people in groups and then single them out by name. Um, um, I, I think that's okay But what you don't want to do is just fall into routine where you can pray without thinking about what you're saying. So um, just be sure that you're in a conversation with your father. Um, And then he says, and I'm going to, I'll be very brief about this because I could do, in fact, I have done several Bible studies on just these few verses. But Jesus gives us the example of how we should pray. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, when I pray that prayer, and this is just an outline, Jesus will, will, will by the power of the Holy Spirit, put meat on those bones. But, but it's acknowledging that our Father's in heaven. That means he's got a, a place in heaven where he's sovereign. It, it means he knows the end from the beginning. And so we acknowledge his greatness. We acknowledge his goodness. For those of you that like to sing, what a wonderful place this would be able to sing, a song like we do occasionally here at the church, uh, A Good, Good Father. Um, Our Father in heaven. We need to make sure that we're born again, otherwise he's not our Father. And then we need to approach him. That's the hallowed be your name. We have to approach him on the basis of holiness. And too often, we don't even think about personal holiness. And yet the Bible says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And then in that same example, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And for me, that's where I say, okay, Lord, your will be done in me. That's earth. I'm, I'm, I'm here on earth. I want to be a, an instrument through whom your will is accomplished. And in order to do that, we've got to put his will ahead of our own. I can't emphasize that enough. I know I always sound like I'm repeating myself too much, but but we've got to understand by faith and by experience that what he wants for us is better than anything that we have. And we've got to approach the Lord with open hands. And when we approach him with open hands, what we're saying is, Jesus, all that junk that I've got in my hands, take it out. And then I'm going to leave my hands open. And you put the stuff back in there that you want in there. And that way I will accomplish your will right here on earth. Because once we get to heaven, of course, then his will is going to be done. And we're going to do it perfectly. So that's the the, the place from where we start. 
And then it's okay to start asking for things. Give us today our daily bread. You know, I know a lot of Christians who are praying now for the winning lottery numbers to that more than $1 billion Powerball lottery. That's not what we should ask for. Jesus, give me enough for today. What did the writer of Proverbs say? Don't give me too much, lest I turn on you. Don't give me too little, lest I steal and lie and beg and borrow. So today, Lord, I'm going to trust you for what I need today. I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. I'm not going to worry about next month's rent. I'm not going to worry about all those things. Just give me enough for today, Lord, that I can serve you, that I can love you. And then he says to forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. In other words, we're asking Jesus to forgive us with the same measure we forgive others. If you approach the Lord, anonymous, with um, unforgiveness in your heart toward other people, then what you're really saying is, okay, Jesus, forgive me just as I've forgiven that person. And then you realize you haven't forgiven them at all. I don't think any of us wants to approach the Lord. So we've got to deal with our own unforgiveness. And then lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If we follow Jesus, we're going to be going in the opposite direction. That's why, again, I stress that walking in his will is the only place to be. And so those are the 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 the, the Cliff Notes version of prayer. But just make sure that your prayer is conversational. Um, talk to the Lord. Don't try to use King James English. Don't um, find yourself um, trying to be more spiritual than you really are. And then my last hint is this. And, you know, Anonymous, I, I don't think anybody has ever taken me up on this. And I think it would do us all a world of good. I encourage the people here at Calvary Chapel all the time to record their prayers. We get recording devices in our pocket, our phones. We can record them. Now, don't pray differently because you're you're recording yourself, but record your prayers and listen. And what you're going to find is you've got a bunch of ticks, and by that I mean things that you say unnecessarily. Lord God Almighty, oh, Lord God Jesus, and just talk to him. He's your friend. He loves you. He's demonstrated that love. So just talk to him. And if you listen to your own prayers being recorded, I think we would, all of us, we would hear the, the, the difficulties that we are coming up with. So Anonymous, those are the tips, but, but it's so important, our prayer relationship with the Lord. We don't have to be on our knees. We don't have to be in a dark room. Uh, we don't have to have everything really, really quiet. Uh, just go out and talk to the Lord. And if your mind wanders as you're talking to the Lord, I like and Paula likes uh, uh, praying while we're walking. Um, if your mind wanders, that's okay. Your mind is weak. Just say, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I, I, I've been thinking about something else while my lips are moving. He understands all of that. He understands our weaknesses. So um, those are the tips, Anonymous. I think they will help you a great deal. Here is another Anonymous question. Uh, Do you think churches should be teaching LGBTQ issues and how to deal with them? Anonymous, certainly we should not be teaching LGBTQ issues. We should be teaching the Bible. That's what churches ought to do. And see, if you're in the Bible, these are very black and white issues. This is wrong and this is right. It's just that simple. And so when we are dealing with people who are are either involved in the LGBTQ lifestyle or pro the LGBTQ lifestyle, we can say with authority that we are um, approaching them in love because they're wrong and we want them to go to heaven. But the, the idea that we ought to be teaching issues or, or, or how to approach people, we do it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say this. I think too often uh, when we're talking to somebody who is trying to pin us down, are you for or are you against, I think uh, immediately we feel the pressure to say, nope, this is sin. You've got to stop doing it. And, and that's not our approach. Our approach is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And so what we tell somebody who is living an LGBTQ lifestyle is, God loves you. 
And he proved it by dying for your sins. And because he didn't stay dead, all of this is historical fact. The evidence is overwhelming. It means that you can approach God and ask for forgiveness of your sins and repent of those sins. But see, it's the Holy Spirit that has to lead them away from the sinful lifestyle. My Bible study tomorrow is really one of the most difficult Bible studies I've ever given. When I say difficult, it's just... It's horrible. Leviticus 14 and 15, I'm going to try to do it. Um, but but it, it's, it's clean and unclean. And we've got to be able to communicate that. Jesus is the one, God is the one who giveth the gift of sexuality. And so we have to agree with him on the proper and holy use of our sexuality. And if you teach people the Bible... Then the Holy Spirit, working through his word, will minister to them. But whenever we get focused on issues, whatever they might be, uh, we are losing our position, um, the position entrusted to us by the Lord as pastors. Our job is to teach the Bible, what it says, what it means, and how we apply it in our lives. Very important. Now, let me, this isn't what you asked, Anonymous, but let me say this. We who are Christians, generally we're conservative people, and now we're coming up on another political season. We're not coming up. We've already arrived, the, the politics behind the scenes. And people are, are angry about all the things that are going on, and we're looking for, for churches that will focus on and major in politics. We want to hear what we want to hear, something we agree with. We've got to do something. And our answer has got to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, half of our country is on the left, the other half on the right. If we who are believers take a position, now we can stand for righteousness, right and wrong, those aren't difficult issues. But if we take a position that pits 50% of the people in our nation against us, then we've lost the opportunity to declare Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead to them. We might win arguments. We might be effective debaters. We might even be convinced that this is what we need to do in an election year. And yet we need to take our cues from the Bible. All of that to say, politics is an issue. Don't get caught up in it and lose sight of the person of Jesus Christ in the process. Now, I know when I say that, there's a bunch of people that get angry with me. But remember, Jesus is the one who is the head of the church. Not the Republican Party, not Donald Trump, not your particular brand of politics. It's Jesus who's the head of the church. We have to follow his direction. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Um, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. James says, Can you clarify the different judgments of God? For instance, why will believers be judged? And what is that judgment about? Um, James, there's there's several different judgments. Uh, there's going to be, uh, and I'll be brief with this first one, the judgment of nations. Uh, in the millennial kingdom, nations of God will be judged based on how they treated God's people, Israel. It's that simple. Uh, that's the, the sheep and the goats, and Jesus talks about that in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, there's a great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment will happen at the end of the millennial reign of Christ on earth. Um, and the people who reject Jesus Christ will be thrown into the lake of fire. And that will be the final judgment. And that is for eternity. Where are we going to spend eternity, heaven or hell? And and by that time, um, the, the lot will be cast. They, nobody can change their mind uh, when they rebelled against Jesus Christ after a perfect thousand year reign of justice on this world. They are going to be lost forever. Now, the the particular judgment that you're asking about is the bema, B-E-M-A, is the Greek word. 
Uh, and that's the judgment of rewards. First uh, Corinthians chapter 3, Romans chapter 12 talks about this judgment. The idea comes from the ancient Olympic Games uh, when the athletes would be on the podium and receive their crowns. Um, th- that would be, th- if they won, they would get uh, get their crowns or based on their performance. Well, the same thing is true for us. We're going to stand before the Lord in this judgment. It is not a judgment of salvation. That issue has already been settled once and forever. So we don't have to worry about that. If you're a born-again believer, then your place in heaven is secure. However, we do things and the the things that we do are going to be judged. What was our motive? Are they good works or are they good for nothing works? The idea is that we can do something that's really good, but if we do it with the wrong heart, there's no reward for that. And so the rewards uh, that we're going to both receive and lose at the Bema seat, uh, we think we have rewards because I did this or I gave that. If our heart was wrong, if we did it for the wrong reason, then there's going to be no reward for that. But the rewards that we receive, the crowns of life, the crowns of righteousness that we receive are for those works that stand the test of fire. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, we're, we're told about uh, the works of wood, hay, and stubble compared to the works of, of gold and silver and precious stones. Uh, the wood, hay, and stubble gets burned up in the fire of judgment. Those are the works that were literally good for nothing. There might have been something good that you did, but it has no value for you if they were accompanied with the wrong motive or if you were doing something to get people to think of you as being spiritual or or, or of you trying to get attention from people. Those works will be burned up. On the other hand, and I really like thinking about this because what it means is that everybody's going to get these rewards based on having the right heart. It doesn't mean you have to be a pastor, an evangelist, uh, somebody that does great earth-shattering, earth-changing, life-changing things. Uh, All it means is that um, we can do that one thing that God asks us to do. I always think of this when we've got a bunch of families in our church that have um, really gotten into adopting uh, foster kids and... um, um, I, I can't tell you what it's like. The, the lives of so many of these children have changed immeasurably. Um, I don't have anybody on the on the phone. Nobody on the phone. So we, we get two little girls, one in particular, who when I first met her, just very first met her, um, there was death in her eyes. It was death in her eyes. And um, she was adopted. And um, I just wish you could see this little girl now. She is so full of joy and so uh, just there's life. She laughs and she smiles and she's so much fun to be around. And all I can think about is, you know, those two parents changed that girl's life and her sister and we've got others who've adopted siblings and you you have the opportunity and you get nothing from it i mean you get the 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 joy that comes from being loved and loving but i mean this was a hardship these kind of adjustments are difficult and and i just man i want to be there when they get their rewards because their crowns are going to be so glorious. And, of course, they're going to throw them at the feet of Jesus. Um, but, but the idea is our rewards are going to be judged be, or given based on our heart and what we did. And it doesn't have to be the kind of things that we think normally. You know, the Billy Grahams of the world are going to get all of the, the, the awards. Um, not so. Not so. You're going to be judged on were you faithful with what you were given and, and what you were asked by God to do. And if you will do that, James, um, your crowns are going to be absolutely wonderful and glorious. So um, those are the judgments. Um, I hope I didn't take up too much of your time with the other stuff. Great, great, great stuff. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Let me see if I have a quick one. Um, yes, here's a quick one. Marcus wants to know, uh, did Lot's wife go to heaven? The answer, Marcus, is no. 
Uh, she was warned not to look back, follow your husband, get out of town, and she didn't do it. She looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. She she demonstrated where her heart really was. So uh, the, the answer to your question is very simple. Think about Lot for a moment. He was a righteous man. We know that from Peter's account. Um, he was a righteous man whose heart was vexed. His spirit was vexed. That's a bad place to be because of all the sin, the evil around him. And his ministry was so compromised that he couldn't even convince his wife. And now forever they will be separated, she in hell and he in heaven. But his ministry was so compromised, his walk so compromised, that she didn't even listen to her husband. And of course, neither did uh, his sons-in-law, uh, it, it just, that's what happens. When we are not consistent in our walk with the Lord, then we cause others to stumble. So no, Marcus Lot's wife did not go to heaven. Uh, she had the opportunity and she made the wrong choice. And remember that we are all accountable for the choice that we make. What are we going to do with Jesus? The most important question that we're ever going to encounter So no, she did not go to heaven. We've, at the end of the first half of our program, phones are quiet. We'd love your calls, questions, or comments. Uh, You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Let's go to Tony on line one from San Antonio. Tony, thank you for calling. You are on the air. Uh, hello, sir. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had a question. So I've, my whole life, I've always just been a pre-trib rapture. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've heard a lot of people lately talking about post-trib. And then recently I even discovered that there's more views uh, that are more mainstream outside of the United States. So I was just curious what your take was on uh, the end times, whether we're expecting a pre-trib rapture, post-trib, mid-trib. Yeah, Tony, thank you for that. I I can do that. And I think personally, this is a very important issue. I think when you look at in other countries where you say there there are different perspectives on on eschatology altogether, uh, you're talking about denominationalism and stuff. And there's um, certainly people that don't believe in in a rapture at all. First uh, Corinthians fifteen fifty one, First and Second Thessalonians, uh, make it pretty clear that the rapture is real. Paul says in First Corinthians fifteen fifty one, uh, I tell you a mystery. It was something that wasn't revealed until Jesus Himself um, um, sort of took the lid off that mystery for Paul. He said, "We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, and and uh, that's when we're going to receive our glorified bodies." Now. Um, the the idea of a rapture until recently, and there's always people like, oh no, that's science fiction, it's not going to happen. Um, but but there was very little dissent on the issue of a rapture. It was accepted as 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 fact. The differences were in the timing of the rapture. Uh, is the rapture going to be post-trib, pre-trib, mid-trib? And I think the newest one, probably now 20 years old, the idea is a pre-wrath. A guy named Marvin Rosenthal um, sort of brought it to life. Um, and the idea is that we're going to be in the middle of the of the of the wrath of God, and that's when the rapture of the church is going to happen. Now, I could not be any more emphatic in saying that we are a pre-trib, pre-mill a church. We believe the Bible teaches that the church will be taken out, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Paul speaking to the church at Philadelphia, and he says, I'm going to take you away from the very hour of, of the place where the trial of the wrath of God is going to come upon all of those who live on the earth. I think that is a prophetic promise for the church. But more than that, 
I think we have to factor in the nature and the character of God. And Tony, if our sin has been judged, it is impossible for God to judge us again. Now, we have to start with a premise. That premise is that the great tribulation is the wrath of God. I think if you read the Old Testament, the time of Israel's distress, the time of Jacob's trouble, I think clearly the, the, the great tribulation is the wrath of God being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. In fact, in Revelation chapter 6, when this, the, the seal judgments are uh, unleashed, um, the people there know that this is the wrath of the Lamb. That's what the last verses, two verses in Revelation 6 say. Uh, that's the wrath of the Lamb. They know it. Now, if the wrath of God is being poured out, then by definition, we cannot be there. And the reason we can't be there is because it's impossible for God to judge the righteous with the wicked. You remember in Genesis 18 and 19, when Jesus and the destroying angels showed up to tell Abraham what they were going to do in Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, Abraham began negotiating. Oh, surely the righteous judge of all the earth will not punish the righteous with the wicked. And Jesus agreed with him. No, I won't do it. If you find 50 righteous or 40 righteous, it went all the way down to five righteous. If you find even five righteous, I'll spare them the judgment. And and when when the destroying angel was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he snatched Lot's hand, and said, I cannot do anything until you're out of here. So it's impossible for a a just God to punish us with his wrath when Jesus, Tony, has accepted um, the wrath of God on our behalf. God's not angry with us. Uh, We haven't rejected Christ. So by definition, based on God's character, we have to be taken out of here before the wrath of God is poured out. There can't be any other way. Now, Tony, let me give you uh, an idea. You can go to our website, calvarysa.com. Go to our Bible studies where uh, I have Revelation. And go to the very first study that you see there in Revelation chapter 4. By the way, my notes are also uh, on the website, my commentary. I have a full commentary on the book of Revelation that it's everything on there is free. But Revelation chapter 4, that first study, I devote every time I teach it. I've taught Revelation, I think, four times here at the church. Uh, Every time I teach it, I devote that study to a thorough study of the rapture, the pictures of the rapture in the Old Testament, the reasons why it has to be a pre-trib rapture of the church, and then the New Testament passages as well. There is no conceivable way that you can rationalize a mid-trib or a post-trib or a pre-wrath rapture um, um, using the Bible. You know, people say, well, you pre-tribbers, you just don't want to suffer. Well, of course, Jesus, in fact, said that we should pray that we would be counted worthy to escape those trials. And the only way we can be worthy, of course, is to receive the righteousness given to us by Christ. So, Tony, very important. This is a, a doctrine we're to be told to look for the return of the Lord. And um, and if we believe in a post-trib rapture, a pre-wrath or a mid-trib rapture, we're not looking for Jesus. We're looking for the Antichrist. And the reality is uh, that we will be in a... Um, uh, will be those who are taken away. And and one last thought, Tony, it's going to happen soon. And it will happen suddenly. By the way, that's what soon means, uh, without warning. Um, but, but Jesus is coming back. He's coming back soon. People have been saying that for 2,000 years. Uh, but look at the world that we live in. And we need to be ready. And every single believer who really and truly believes that Jesus is coming for his church soon, ought to be about sharing the gospel with people, ought to be about telling people um, that Jesus is returning so they can get ready. So, Tony, thank you very much. Uh, As you can tell, that's a question that I'm passionate about. And um, you're a pre-trib rapture guy. Stay that way. Don't let anybody confuse you. Um, Just read the Bible. There's no way you can read the Bible 
and come up with anything other than a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Here's a question from Mel. He says, uh, Pastor Ron, can you comment on the state of Bible preaching in the United States right now? Um, Mel, yeah, I can do that sort of briefly. I, I'm, I'm not the expert on the condition of preaching and or preachers in the United States. But, but I think we're in that time, um, the, the great falling away. I think the Bible is under attack in professing Christian churches like at no other time in our history. Um, we have become a feel-good church. I don't mean Calvary Chapel. I mean the church at large. People come to church to have their ears tickled. They come to church to feel good about themselves. They come to church to be entertained. Uh, they don't come to be convicted and to be changed by the power of the Word of God. And I think, Mel, that, that most of our preaching uh, is is cotton candy preaching. Um, clearly, there's a lot of false preaching as well, but, but I, I think the Bible warns us about that. And it is a sad thing for me that the Bible's not taught. Uh, I love what God has called me to do, Mel, because he's called me to teach the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And that's what we do. So I can't avoid any things. Believe me, anybody that tunes into my Bible study tomorrow night is going to see that I can't avoid anything at all. If I could, I would avoid tomorrow night's Bible study at all costs. But we're dealing with the Bible and what it says as it comes up, as the, as the Spirit is leading us through our study, Acts chapter 19. I, I started it last Sunday. I'm going to finish it this Sunday. So I, I can't uh, I can't avoid those things. I simply cannot avoid those, those difficult issues, the hard words. Uh, we just take them as they come up. And I think, Mel, based on Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, that's what we're supposed to do. They were devoted to the apostles' doctrine. And doctrine matters, Paul told Timothy, to watch your life and doctrine closely. And because doctrine matters, we we end up living what we truly believe. If our doctrine is off, then we're going to be off in our walk with the Lord. And that's why uh, uh, teaching expositionally through the Bible, I'm firmly convinced, is really the only effective way to make sure that we can say like the Apostle Paul did, in his farewell to the Ephesian elders, that, that hey, uh, I'm, I'm innocent of your blood. If you don't end up following what you were taught, it's not my fault because I have declared to you the whole counsel of God. And I think, Mel, that's what we're supposed to do. The prosperity teaching, the false teaching, the, the um, seeker-sensitive teaching, the live-your-best-life-now preaching— all of that that is so popular and fills churches. Uh, and, and let me add something else, the political preaching. Um, you want a big church now? The best way to have a big church is to preach politics, to take a side and stand on its side and try to rally the troops around your political causes. Uh, that will fill up a church. Um, so I, I guess I said that the state of preaching in the United States isn't all that good right now. But that's what the Bible warns us is going to happen in the last days. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Phyllis. She said, in the Old Testament, Jews only prayed in the temple at uh, at the temple or at specific times. Why do Christians have to pray more? Phyllis, your perspective is all wrong. It's not why we have to pray more. We get to pray more. We have a relationship with God that that Jews couldn't even begin to imagine. You know, just the the, the idea of Christ in us, the hope of glory. The fact that we have 24-hour-a-day access to the throne room of God is something a Jew could never have imagined. God was a distant God to them. He, they were, he was a, an angry God, and they didn't want to get on his wrong side. 
Well, God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ to be a kind, loving, forgiving, gracious, patient God. Now, in the Old Testament, God told him that, that God was compassionate and patient and and slow to anger and abounding in love. But all of that comes to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. So they would pray at the times of prayer three times a day, um, facing east, facing Jerusalem. Um, and and uh, it, it's almost like, well, that's when you pray. And the rest of the day was theirs. You and I, Phyllis, we get to take Jesus with us everywhere we go. We get to carry on a running conversation with him all day, every day. And so we get to pray. It's not that we have to pray. Talking to God ought to be the most important thing in your life. That's how you get to know him. That's how you get to know more about who you are. And um, praying in the will of God is going to produce some great results. I hope that makes sense to you. Larry wants to know, does the Bible ever say that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute? The answer is no, Larry. That's Catholic theology. Uh, She was a woman caught in the act of adultery. That is simply not the case. Completely different woman. And uh, why Mary Magdalene gets dragged into that tradition, I'll never understand. But it is very clear that Mary Magdalene uh, was not a prostitute and was not that woman. Uh, And uh, Mary Magdalene, delivered by Jesus from a life of horror, terror, inhabited by seven demons, Uh, Mary would have been the most grateful of all the people following Jesus. And I think that's the portrayal that the Bible makes of Mary Magdalene. So, uh, no, she was not a prostitute. Now, she may have done horrible things uh, when she was inhabited by demons, but uh, she was not a prostitute uh, and, and certainly was not the woman caught in the act of adultery. Morgan says, Pastor Ron, have you ever heard God's voice audibly? Um, Morgan, the answer is no. And nobody hears God's voice audibly. Now, when I say that, there's a bunch of people saying, well, I have, and I hear God's voice audibly. You don't. If you heard God's voice audibly, it would shake the rafters of your house. It would shake the foundations of everything. We, we couldn't stand in that presence. And when Israel heard the voice of God, when they were surrounding that mountain, they were so frightened that they said, no, Moses, you go talk to him for us. We don't want to go back there. So, no, I've not heard God's voice audibly. Now, having said that, Morgan, there are times when I have heard God's voice so clearly, so distinctly, that it was as though it was audible. I mean, I had no doubt if you were here talking to me, Morgan, and I could see your lips moving and hear the sound, I'd say, yeah, Morgan was talking to me. Well, I've been that certain about some things, not a lot of things, but some things I've been that certain about uh, because the Lord spoke to me that profoundly about that issue. One of them, Morgan, was uh, the decision to come to San Antonio, Texas. I was in Bible college, and uh, we we were. Uh, I was on a mountain taking a walk with the Lord, just praying. It was a, um, a, a cool day with snow still on the ground uh, in the San Bernardino Mountains, and the um, uh, Lord stopped me in my tracks. I was just talking to Him, and He stopped me in my tracks, and He spoke to my heart and said, "I want you to begin praying for the people of San Antonio, Texas." It was so profound that I went right back to my dorm room and wrote it in my Bible. I dated it and timed it and wrote down what the Lord asked me to do. And and from that point forward, I never had any doubt that that was the Lord speaking to me. We've done other things here, free school. I knew that I, I, I knew that God asked me to do that, just not to ask for money. The things that we we do here that are, are unique to our ministry, it's okay for people to ask for money. It just not for us because God's asked us to trust him. Uh, but the idea here is there are times when God will speak so loudly but not audibly to you that you will know that it's him. There are times when he'll speak to you in a dream. Uh, I don't experience that often, but there are times when God will speak to you in a dream and it will feel so real that it's audible. But no, God does not speak audibly. Uh, If he did, 
we wouldn't be able to stand it. So, Morgan, thank you for the question. I hope that um, satisfies. Terry says, I keep asking God to take temptation from me, but he doesn't. Why won't he help me? Well, Terry, here's where I'm going to challenge your faith. God has already taken the, the, the temptation away from you. Now, he's not going to stop the enemy from pushing those buttons, but he's given you the power over temptation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand. In other words, you can overcome the temptation. Now, Terry, I would ask you if you believe that. It's in your Bible, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. Do you really believe that? Because if you do, then you realize that he's already taken the power temptation has over you. Now, what happens to us is we embrace that temptation. We, we really don't want to give it up. And so we want the easy way out. There's no easy way out. God leaves those things in our lives because he wants you to learn to fight. Paul says, once we were slaves to sin, now we're slaves to righteousness. Terry, Sounds like you're still a slave to sin. I'm not questioning your salvation, but I want you to understand that this battle has already been won and challenge you to have the faith that believes that. Now, the way out that he's going to provide is simple. The minute you start to sin, the Holy Spirit is going to convict you. You know you shouldn't be doing this. And at that moment, you've got to say, you're right, Lord, I, I, I shouldn't be doing this. And then you get away. Whatever the sin is, you run away from it. Just like Joseph ran away from uh, being seduced by Potiphar's wife. He ran away. How can I do this terrible thing and sin against God, he said. And he ran away even though it caused him trouble. All you have to do is recognize that if you are going to embrace the temptation, then you're going to have to say goodbye for a time to Jesus. If you hang out with Jesus, you're not going to say yes. If Jesus were with you physically, whatever the temptation is, if he was there with you physically, you would not do that thing. Well, you've got to realize that he's there with you. Now, you can't see him. He's not physical. But he's there in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so when you start to, to, to entertain the thoughts of that temptation, you know it's wrong. The Holy Spirit's going to let you know it's wrong. And that's when you've got to run another way. You know, and Terry, I'm, I'm not suggesting this. I don't want anybody in the audience to think that, that I'm judging Terry. But I tell people, uh, especially men who struggle with pornography, this all the time. Every time you get that temptation to look at pornography, and again, this is not Terry's issue, every single time, if you'd say, nope, I'm not going to look at that, and open your Bible, or you get on your knees and start praying, you'd overcome the sin, the temptation easily. But we don't do it. Instead, we, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. We focus on that which we're being tempted to do, and the next thing we find out is that we're actually giving in to the temptation itself. We hate ourselves, and then the enemy who is tempting you to do it then heaps all kinds of condemnation on you. Terry, I want you to challenge yourself to really believe the promises of God. First Corinthians 10.13, memorize it. It'll only take a minute. Memorize it, and every time temptation comes in, think, oh yeah, I don't have to give in to this. Open your Bible. Take a walk with the Lord. Go minister to somebody else. But don't expect God to take it away. He's already won the victory. He wants you now to give it to him. That's when he's blessed. That's when he's so pleased. When you say, I, I know my flesh wants to do this thing, but, Lord, I don't want to do this thing and sin against you. So, Terry, I hope that helps you out. <laughs> Ryan, I'm laughing with you, Ryan. Ryan says, Pastor Ron, I need help in loving my enemies. Do you have any ideas? Um, Ryan, we all need help in loving our enemies. That's what Jesus said, uh, sets us apart from the rest of the world. Um, our flesh wants to crush our enemies. Jesus says to love our enemies. Jesus loved you 
when you were separated from him by sin. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. While we hated him, he died for us. And if Jesus didn't love his enemies, none of us, Ryan, would be here. So here's what you need to do. And this is so practical, and I promise you it'll work. It may take you a little bit of time, and you may struggle with it mildly at the beginning, but I promise you it will work. You start praying for your enemies. You start praying for them by name. And when you're praying, you're not complaining about them. You're just saying, Lord, I don't want people in my life not to see my joy. And and, and, and I, I want to rightly represent you to them. And so I need to love them. I repent of not being able to love them. So God, bless them. Now, you may have to pray that through clenched teeth. But you pray for them and you keep praying for them. I absolutely promise you. Ryan, that the Holy Spirit will convict you. That's how important this is. And when you can say, I really do love my enemies, I want them in heaven, that's when everything will change. So do that. And Ryan, if you do that, the Lord will be pleased. Pleasing him is more important than anything else that you've got on your plate. So Ryan, thank you for your honesty there. Appreciate it very, very much. I think we're about the end of the program. I didn't realize the time had gone that quickly. Hey, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to You've been listening to the Word of Santa for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at four o'clock on AM six thirty the word. We'll see you then. Spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.